So when I studied linguistics in school, I heard and read a lot of the same names. Steven Pinker, Noam Chomsky, Edward Sapir, Benjamin Worf, Leonard Bloomfield, Ferdinand de Saussure. These are some of the fathers of linguistics, the captains, if you will. And in my graduate research and bibliography course, when talking with my professor about what my semester-long project might be about, she recommended, based on my interest, that I research more about structuralism and its applications to literature. It sounded interesting, so I dived right in. In my research, I saw a lot of these same names, but I also found myself coming across something that was almost completely new to me. Prague. I mean, I knew Prague was a place, but I didn't really know what it was doing in this field of linguistic research. Sometimes I found the term the Prague Linguistic Circle, the Prague School, Pragian Linguistics, Leocold de Prague, etc. And there were some names that I recognized. Roman Jakobsen, for example, was one that kept coming up. But there were maybe hundreds that I had never heard of before. Scholars who were doing a lot of linguistic research and making huge findings that clearly influenced modern linguistics. Yet, really, I had never heard of any of this. I kept finding more and more out about the Prague School, and the rabbit hole just kept getting deeper and deeper. I felt a kind of connection to these linguists because I heard a lot of their ideas, but I had never heard that these people were credited with the research. As I studied more, I began to feel like a definite disservice had been done to them. It's almost like I knew these men from the early 20th century. And after 150 pages of research in three months, it consumed me so much that I decided that this was going to be what my graduate research project would be about, so I could share with whoever wanted to listen about the work that was originally theirs. So today, I'm going to assume that, like 2013 me, you don't know hardly anything about the Prague Linguistic Circle, and I'm going to share with you why you should get to know them. The Prague School actually started because of ailing eyesight. In the early 1920s in Prague, Wilhelm Maltesius, a professor of English studies at Charles University, was producing groundbreaking research addressing quote-unquote concrete problems in historical grammar, which we'll talk about in a minute. His poor vision, however, made it increasingly difficult to read letters of correspondence and reports from other researchers, students, and professors, so he preferred to meet in person so he could discuss these topics face-to-face. -face. Beginning in 1923, Matesius met on a daily basis with Bohno Trenka, a former student and then a co-worker at Charles University. A young graduate from Moscow University, Roman Jakobsen, maybe you've heard of him, <laughs> also came to visit Matesius in order to talk about their shared linguistic interests. At Moscow University, Jakobsen, Peter Bogotayrov, and five other students had founded the Moscow Linguistic Circle, which went on to become the center of the Russian formalist movement, though it, it should be noted that a handful of MLC members ended up actually going to Prague to join their group. In 1925, Sergei Yosefovich Kartievsky and Bohuslav Havranik joined this group too. Matesius describes it like this, quote, I had worked out a paper on new currents and tendencies in linguistic research. The main theses of that paper, outlining the directions for a new approach to linguistic problems, were subjected to discussion as an ideological basis for the linguistic center, which, with our joint forces, we were resolved to establish in Prague. The form of our joint activities was to be, in the beginning, meetings with lectures followed by discussions." End quote. The first recognized meeting of this linguistic center was on October 6, 1926, when six men, those mentioned plus Jan Ripka, a librarian and scholar interested in Eastern literatures and languages, 
gathered to hear a presentation from visiting German linguist Dr. Enrich Becker on, quote, the European spirit of language. Those in attendance enjoyed the meeting so much that they insisted on meeting regularly, about once every month, inviting members of their own group and outside thinkers with interesting linguistic contributions to speak about various topics. The group desired to maintain an intimacy and therefore limited each meeting to about seven people. In addition to these semi-formal meetings held in Matasius's office in the English Department of Charles University, there were also informal meetings at members' homes. In its first two years, there were 20 official lectures given within the Prague Linguistic Circle. Then in 1928, the Prague School made itself known through similar linguistic groups in neighboring countries. A group of Dutch linguists at the Catholic University of Nijmegen formed the first International Congress of Linguistics, or the ICLA, in April, posing six questions to its participants. Thirteen theses were provided to answer these six questions, and ten of them were from members of the Prague Circle, including Karczewski, Nikolai Sojievich Trubetskoy, Jakobsen, and Matasius. These ten theses, like other essays from the Prague School at the time, mostly identified inadequacies in conventional linguistic approaches, especially towards Slavic languages, and proposed possible solutions. They not only demonstrated to the wider international linguistic community that the Prague School was a significant force, but also consolidated and disseminated the foundational tenets of their beliefs, the grounds on which they held them, and precisely how they thought such theoretical assumptions would benefit developments in the greater linguistic community. Matesius wrote again, quote, It became clear to us even more than before that in the international context we were by no means isolated in our theoretical views. We won friends and allies abroad, unquote. By 1929, several of the members of the various groups worked together and presented a variety of additional theses in the First International Congress of Slavicists. These theses were published in the inaugural volume of Travaux du Cercle Linguistique de Prague, which became the Prague School's primary organ of ongoing publication of research. The following year, in 1930, the group also started the International Phonological Conference, or the IPC, in preparation for the Linguistic Congress of Geneva in 1931. In the midst of the conference's vigorous discussions of conquering phonological problems, with 15 foreign scientists plus the additional 17 from Czechoslovakia in attendance, attendees also named Trubetskoy as founding president of the International Phonological Association, or the IPA. In subsequent years, Prague School members strove to bring its concerns to a domestic audience through publications such as contributions to the sections on linguistics in the Knowledge of the Country Encyclopedia and its companion periodical, Word and Poetics, in 1934 and 1935. Members also had several opportunities to influence discussion abroad. Several Prague School members presented at the International Congress of Phonetic Sciences, starting in Amsterdam in 1932, and at the International Congress of Linguists, beginning in Rome in 1930. It was at the Amsterdam meeting of 1932 that the term L'École de Prague was first used to describe the group of linguists by someone outside of their membership, giving the group a collective identity worthy of their notoriety in the larger community of scholars. Thus, the Prague School was born. <laughs> so what exactly did these guys do anyway? The group often met to celebrate various occasions, as was the case in 1930, when they came together to commemorate the 80th birthday of Tomasz Garig Masaryk, who strongly supported the emerging school and the promise of his younger colleagues hoped therein. The school also met to fight, as happened the following year in 1931, when several members stood together to oppose the purest political prohibitions of Jerry Haller. Haller was a professor and editor at Charles University, and he supported the use of outdated Czech language in order to preserve dogmatic ideas and Czech patriotism. 
Though many in the group were very proud Czechs, Prague School members disagreed with this practice, and they argued that it took away from the life and potential of the language to grow. The subsequent controversy was fierce. I mean, real fierce, and contributed to shaping the view of Haller as quote-unquote obstinate, incorrigible, a grinder, and even exorcist. I mean, this is not gentle language. In all contexts, intellectual, academic, political, the Prague School emerged as a major voice to consult and heed concerning an array of matters political, linguistic, and aesthetic. So what were some of the main teachings and beliefs of the Prague School that made them so influential? Well, let's take a look back at Matesius' 1911 essay called On the Potentiality of the Phenomena of Language. Now, at this point, this is where the podcast is going to get pretty heavy and wordy. So if you have any questions, you know, just let me know. Anyway, this essay is considered the inaugural publication of Prague School Thought, and it identified issues that, in Matesius' estimation, were not being adequately addressed in contemporary linguistic study. This was an ongoing theme in a lot of Prague work, as you've probably already noticed, addressing downfalls of contemporary linguistic research and offering improvements. Matesius believed that experts too often observed the forest and too little the trees. Instead, he wanted to examine the limbs, the bark, the veins of the leaves, the roots, and strongly to persuade others to appreciate the complex beauty that made up the forest. Matesius makes this bold statement against the then current state of affairs in linguistic research. Quote, the very development of linguistics thus reveals that linguistics should not only try to discover regularities as general as possible, but also to fight, even more intensely, against the excessive mechanical oversimplification of language phenomena." Matesius's solution to the gross oversight of languages phenomena was not to focus on the outlines of language, as he thought the field of linguistics was doing, but to delve into individual speech oscillations and patterns. To unlock the complexities of communication, vocalizations had to be broken into the smallest components, both within an individual speech patterns and in shared sounds, later called phonemes. Matesius continued in his writing to argue for the importance of seemingly minute linguistic components. He believed that phonemes themselves had inherent complexities and would reveal further phenomena in language, both in individual words and in the contextual culture. Quote, the fixed character of previous linguists' perception of individual speech patterns, that is, applies only to the qualities of the primary sounds themselves, not to the secondary qualities such as quantity, sharpness, and intensity. Further, that it is interfered with by analogy, and finally, that it does not apply at all to non-domestic words. Non-phonetic aspects of language, naturally, are left unnoticed by earlier linguists." Unquote. Examining qualities of individual speech patterns such as length of vowel sounds, syntactic usages and their effects on sounds, and frequency and intonation, Matesius believed, would shed substantial light on disagreements among contemporary linguists. The independence of a word within a sentence, the independence of syllables within words, the evolution of spelling as a possible clue to habits of gemination, which is repetition of words for emphasis, word categories and their relationships, if any, to stress, even practices of naming an entity based on its dominant features, all of these areas of contentious debate could be clarified through a more phenomenological approach. Let's try saying that word five times fast. <laughs> The mutual relation of linguistics and stylistics, as Matesius puts it, and the influence of functionality on lexical and semantic aspects of speech could identify the importance of what had been considered insignificant features of language. By seeing the potential to yield more knowledge and reveal complexity in all areas of language study, general and particular, Matesius believed much could be resolved in linguistic debates. Before the Prague School, structural linguistics focused on morphology and phonetics. 
Phonetics, as generally understood, is the study of sound and pronunciation in relation to the physical properties of the human vocal tract. Morphology is the study of the smallest units of meaning, what might be to English speakers most easily associated with things like prefixes and suffixes. As an example, although un, spelled un, is not itself a word in the English language, it is a morpheme. It has a meaning that carries significance into a word, signifying not or no. Trubetskoy married these two fields, morphology and phonetics, into the field of phonology. Trubetskoy and Jakobsen were friends in Moscow, and they had a shared interest in phonology. Jakobsen invited Trubetskoy to join the Prague School, and he became a key member and contributor. He was even named president of the International Phonological Association in 1931, as I said earlier. Trubetskoy's theories on phonology stated that while morphemes were the smallest unit of meaning in a language, pieces called phonemes could also carry meaning, although by themselves they did not have an understood meaning. For instance, the difference between cat and cut in English is the difference between two phonemes, a and a. Just changing these two sounds, which in this case is represented by letters, not only alters the meaning of a word, but also its grammatical implications and its rules of usage in a sentence. Trubetskoy and Jakobsen both found the concept of sound differentials fascinating and began to wonder if sounds themselves carry discrete meanings and if there might even be a pattern cross-linguistically for certain sounds to carry certain meanings in phonemes. These kinds of questions traverse from phonology into the more specific field of sound symbolism, which Jakobsen studied at length in subsequent years, as seen through his collection of essays in language and literature. Both linguists focused much of their studies on phonology, experimenting with placement of phonemes in different contexts of different languages, and more closely examining their, quote, binary and hierarchical articulatory and acoustic distinctive features, unquote. These features collectively shape the Pragian phonological principles and are still basic concepts in linguistics as part of the natural speech acts in De Saussure's concept of parlorol, but also part of the code of the long, and that's long spelled L-A-N-G-U-E ultimately drawing a disciplinary divide between phonetics and phonology. The philosophically sophisticated concept of phonemes was one of the main contributions made by the Prague Linguistic Circle to the discipline of linguistics as an academic field. In his wonderful overview of the Prague School's history and teachings, and also one of the only sources to treat the thinkers of the group as individuals, Josef Wahek clarifies that in its movement through time and translation, the term phonology itself is often confused in English linguistics. The term phonology had been used in America for decades before the Prague School to describe the history of sounds, probably originating from Jan Baudouin de Courtenay's teachings on the concept of a phoneme in 1876. This is not the focus of Pragian phonology, which looks instead at, quote, that part of linguistics which deals with the phonic phenomena from the viewpoint of their function in language. Therefore, in the late 1930s, Anglo-American linguists used the term phonemics to refer to the Prague School concept of phonology. This, however, was misleading and suggested that Prague School phonology only focused on the importance of the phoneme, which is not quite true. The field, as Vahek says, quote, should by its very definition deal also with stress, intonation, pauses, etc., all of which far outstep the domain of phonemes, unquote. In the 1950s, American linguists started to see this problem and tried to push the term phonematics, but in reality today, it seems that phonemics, phonology, and phonematics are practically interchangeable. Another reason why Trubetskoy and the Prague School do not get due credit for their findings in phonology. Vahek also nods to the admonition from several in linguistics that Pragians pay too much attention to phonemes and local level language concerns, neglecting the higher concerns of literature and language beauty as a whole. He admits that this is not quite unjustified, as, in fact, we have seen through the work of Matasius and Trubetskoy, who both nearly demanded appreciation for phonemes, but 
Quote, this, of course, does not mean that the Prague people have ignored the importance of content for the analysis of language. It means only that the Prague linguists wanted to test the new methods of the basic level so as to gain experience for their application toward higher levels of language. Unquote. As can be readily seen in the individual work of the Prague school thinkers, higher level concerns of literature were always important. One thing that made the Prague school so edgy was its stance against Russian formalism, a strong system of linguistic study at the time. As I said before, Roman Jakobsen came from Moscow and even co-founded the Moscow Linguistic Circle, but ended up leaving there to come to Prague. So why? Well, in 1928, he wrote a very short article, Problems in the Study of Language and Literature, in which he decried primarily the downfalls of Russian formalism for literary criticism. In tough, straightforward language, Jakobsen asserted that, quote, Russian literary and linguistic science require a firm dissociation from the increasing mechanistic tendency to paste together mechanically the new methodology in old obsolete methods. They necessitate a determined refusal of the contraband offer of naive psychologism and other methodological hand-me-downs in the guise of new terminology. Furthermore, academic eclecticism and pedantic formalism, which replaces analysis by terminology and the classification of phenomena, and the repeated attempts to shift literary and linguistic studies from a systematic science to episodic and anecdotal genres, should be rejected." Unquote. Jakobsen's solution to such naivete came in the form of structuralism. He proposed that linguistics and narratives should be examined in terms of their structures and conventions, their complex network of specific structural laws. He, like Matasius, emphasized the importance of synchronism, the tendency toward innovation in a language or text, as well as historical changes. Roman Jakobsen's structuralism, like phonology, became a key component of Prague School thought. In the fields of literature and linguistics, his interests centered especially on phonology and poetry. Jakobsen saw literature and linguistics as especially interwoven disciplines. His familiar and influential stance that, quote, poetry is language and its aesthetic function, unquote, was published first in his Novaya Roskaya Poesia, or Modern Russian Poetry, in 1921. But even 40 years later, in 1960, he republished this thesis in his essay Linguistics and Poetics, with very few alterations and addendums. Whereas Russian formalism, especially from thinkers such as Tenyanov, Tomaszewski, and Vinogradov in the Leningrad branch, Focused primarily on a quantitative approach to literature, Jakobsen and those in the Prague School saw literature based on much more, including but not limited to social contexts and functions, literary tradition, and elevated language versus practical language. Literariness, as Jakobsen identified it in 1921, was the base of the science of literature. It was the ability to, quote, make a certain work into a literary work, unquote, through examination of the devices and tropes such as rhyme, rhythm, parallelism, structure, syntax, semantic, symbol, and metaphor, interplayed intentionally in literature to help propagate meaning and emotional response. Literature as a field did not dictate meanings and conventions for particular texts, as the Russian formalists believed. Meaning was suggested in the way that a particular author used literary tools available to him, and then in the way that these devices fit into the larger context of the individual work, and into the larger context of the field of literature, social, historical, linguistic, etc. This postulate was the groundwork of structuralism, as proposed by Jakobsen and the Prague School thinkers. Structuralism came as a precursor to several other methods of literary criticism, including, but certainly not limited to, American New Criticism, the teachings on semantics and prose from Charles Morris, and the stylistic approach of William K. Wimsatt. Jan Mukherjavsky added to the idea of structuralism by claiming that art, and especially poetry, encompass sign and value along with structure. 
In fact, it was this contribution to structuralism that Mukherjavsky believed set the Prague School structuralism apart from other schools of thought. Quote, structuralism superseded formalism in conceiving the structure as a set of signs, unquote. Sign related to the notion of literature as an artifact of culture, a notion which referred back to the theories included in Russian formalism. Furthermore, Mukherjavsky proposed, based on concepts from De Saussure, that sign had two major components, the external symbol, called the signifiant, and the meaning represented, the signifié. Value was the reader's perception of the sign, the foreknowledge of the subject, and generally what we today might consider to be the response of a reader. Mokozhavsky explained that the aesthetic object of a work was what resulted from the dance of the signifiant, the signifié, the value, and the structure. The overall internal and external response of the work produced its aesthetics. As contexts and cultures shifted around an artifact, quote, the multiplicity, variety, and complexity of the material artifact, unquote, also shifted, making the text liquid and aesthetically pleasing. Much later, Lubomir Dolagel noted that this approach to understanding the structure of literature not only showed the craft of the author, but also the importance of reader understanding, what we now call reader response. He said, a semiotic theory of literary communication has to recognize the active role of the reader, while at the same time reasserting the essential control of the text and its codes over the reader's interpretation. Because of these vital components in the aesthetics of art and poetry, Mokozhavsky strongly believed that poetic language differed from vernacular. Quote, in poetic language, the attention of the writer or the reader is not concentrated on what is being communicated, but rather on how the communication is done, unquote. Through the poet's careful use of language and structure, artful language draws attention to itself, what the Prague School thinkers called l'actualisation, or actualization, or foregrounding. Mukherjavsky's thought on semiotics, considered by some to be, quote, the crowning achievement of the Prague School, relate his theories of structural aesthetics and literature back to linguistics. Semiotics, in a nutshell, describes the aesthetic importance of verbal and nonverbal communication. It is, quote, a global science of signs, verbal, visual, auditory, gestural, tactile, even olfactory, and their various implementations in everyday communicative exchange and in art, unquote. His ideas about the signifiant, signifié, and value correspond directly to ideographs and idiophones in writing and communication. That is, symbols and alphabetical structures point to meaning. A non-Western speaker would look at these words on the script and simply see indecipherable markings. But someone who knows the signifié, signifiant, and values of English as represented in the Latin alphabet would know that these marks of ink represent phonetic conventions of the language that relate to morphemes and phonemes, which represent thought, and which can be compiled into sentences that communicate complete trains of ideas. This is the very basic application of semiotics to linguistics. Mukherjavsky took semiotics further to describe literature and art, saying that because literature in its logistical form is composed of signs and symbols, it is part of a bigger picture of communication, all depending, as his theories of aesthetics suggest, on the signifiant, signifié, the value, and the structure of a work. René Wellick, a second-generation member of the Prague Circle, remarks that Mirkozhovsky's contributions to the Prague School and to literary criticism provided great insight into how the pieces of aesthetics fit themselves into literature, art, and societal contexts. He says, quote, Mirkozhovsky, in his best writing, kept an admirable balance between close observation and bold speculation and propounded a literary theory which illuminates the structure of the work of art its relation to the universe of symbols, and the history of literature, both as literature and social fact." Mikhojovsky's bold and balanced views of the structure of art and aesthetics grew to be some of his most successful and renowned research, and it has aged well in a variety of fields. 
Much of Eastern European live theater has used Mikrodovsky's views on sign, applying knowledge of signifiant and signifier to stagecraft, scene design, and even costume design. In 1934, Mikrodovsky went further, applying his semiotic theories to film theory, comparing the signs of literature to the capabilities of talkies. He started to look at camera angles, space, props, characters, sets, etc., as all being representations of sign and value. For instance, a close-up on a crying actress gives a skewed look into the reality of the story, which sends a signal to the audience that was intentionally manipulated by the director. Film and theater are different from literature in providing visual direction and control, whereas in literature, the readers must form a picture in their minds based on words, or markings, on a page. Moreover, film has a distinct control over the representation of time and space that literature and even theater do not, and Mikrodovsky and his readers found these distinctions fascinating. Some considered Mikrodovsky's semiotic detour from verbal art to be unprofessional, but others considered it vastly relevant to the culture at the time, Quote, Jakobsen, who also wrote on film theory, and Mokrzhovsky were not playing hooky, straying from their proper line of inquiry into the problems of verse and of poetic language. If, so long as the structuralists devoted their attention to poetry alone, they remained within a self-enclosed and seemingly self-referential world of verbal art, now the movie screen offered them, as it were, a window into the outside world of everyday affairs. Rather, through their study of film signification, they conclusively prove that even this apparently perfect mimetic art is subject to semiotic conversion." Unquote. In other words, Mikrodovsky and others in the Prague School continued through their careers to show that their theories had multiple applications in language, in art, in literature, in theater, in film, and even mathematics, which I don't really have time to get into right now, but maybe another day. World War II and the Nazi invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1939 caused the work of the Prague School, understandably, to substantially decline. Czech universities closed their campuses, and several members fled to other countries for their safety. The period also marked the death of a handful of key members. Nikolai Sergeyevich Trubetskoy in 1939 and Josef Miloslav Korzynek and Wilhelm Althaeus in 1945. During this time, Travaux still ran, and by 1939 had published eight issues. Other papers were written, but were prohibited from being published abroad. To this day, several are only available in Czech and Slavic. The Nazis suspended many periodicals altogether, and Soviet regulation of print and curricula paralyzed the greater part of linguistic research work from within the school. After being dominated and ravaged by German armies and the Nazis' policies, the immediate post-war Czechoslovakian exigencies were to rebuild and heal the nation, which took precedence over academic linguistic research. When the Nazis invaded Czechoslovakia in 1939, members of the Prague School scattered, seeking safety. Jakobsen and René Wellick both fled to the United States, Jakobsen to New York, and Wellick to Iowa. Although the Nazis destroyed many of the original documents of the Prague School, members like Jakobsen and Wellick were thankfully able to salvage and smuggle most of their work away from Nazi oppression. As a consequence, Jakobsen is probably the most well-known member of the pre-war Prague linguistic circle in American linguistics, not only because he lived a remainder of his long post-war life in the northeastern United States, but because Jakobsen's work is arguably some of the most substantial, at least of the work that has survived. On a more comprehensive scale, however, not many of the Prague School's contributions are widely recognized, even in America. Prague School thought was effectively and significantly suppressed by the Nazis, who instead enforced the tenets of Russian formalism. 
Furthermore, in the 1940s, the French were gaining popular ground in their developing theories of structuralism. In 1946, Mikodrovsky was invited to speak at the Institut d'Etudes Slaves in Paris about the Prague School of Structuralism, but the result was dreadfully disappointing and really pretty unfair. Parisian structuralists refused to translate and publish Mikodrovsky's lecture in French, keeping it in check, and thus rendering the challenging Prague School approach absentedly inaccessible to much of any potentially interested audience in the West. In these ways, Prague School structuralism had limited influence on the development of French structuralism, although both originated from the same source in De Saussure and the Geneva School. Because of this effective marginalization of Prague School theory, the subsequent reception of structuralism in the West was heavily weighted toward the French. In Jonathan Culler's Structuralist Poetics, Structuralism, Linguistics, and the Study of Literature, published in 1975, he identifies structuralist poetics as strictly French. This trend continued in several important theoretical books throughout the later parts of the 20th century. Several books, including J.G. Mercurior's From Prague to Paris, A Critique of Structuralist and Post-Structuralist Thought, only wink at Prague School contributions before ogling French structuralism and other related schools of thought. Only a few, namely Jan M. Brokman's Structuralism, published in 1971, and Duwe E. Fakuma and Elrud Kuhn Ibsk's Theories of Literature in the 20th Century, published in 1977, give Prague due recognition for clearly pioneering contributions to structuralism as a movement. The official end of the Prague School is an object of academic debate. Many clocked the Prague School's end at 1939, but some functional remnants persisted as the years passed. Throughout the 1940s, several members, including Uldrich Kralik, Jan Mikorovsky, Vladimir Skalichka, Bohuslav Trinka, Felix Kvodichka, and Josef Vahek, continued publishing collections of their studies and works about the school's thinking as a whole, as if writing the school's last will and testament, documenting its life and expressing wishes for its successors. Although some academics see 1948's establishment of communism in Czechoslovakia definitively to mark the circle's end, members of the school remained in that very year as a cohesive panel to answer questions from organizers at the 6th International Congress of Linguistics in Paris. Soon afterward, however, theories from the Prague School, its structuralism, formalism, and conceptual cosmopolitanism, were ruled by the Czech Communist Party as, quote, bourgeois pseudoscience, and were actively repressed. In July of 1949, Jakobsen wrote from New York that the school was forced by authorities to retract its findings and to sever connections with Western scholarship, instead submitting to follow the Soviet version of Marx's ideology of dialectical materialism and earlier theories of a strictly interpreted Russian formalism. Under these constraints, by the early 1950s, the circle supposedly voluntarily disbanded. Much of the behavior thereafter of some members is eyebrow-raising, though, in 1951, Mikrzhovsky, for instance, publicly denounced all the tenets of the Prague School's views of structuralism he formally believed and stated that, quote, the only true science was Marxism. Although all original members of the Prague School have long since deceased, the school's spirited traditions have been preserved through organizations such as the Linguistic Association and the Group for Functional Linguistics. Especially during the 1950s and 60s, interest in the Prague School was rejuvenated, although once again censored by the Soviet invasion in 1968. Travaux, resurrected in 1964, published collections of members' works and talks from a variety of their meetings in numerous volumes, such as Pragiana, some basic and lesser-known aspects of the Prague linguistic circle, edited by Vahek and Lubishi Dushkova, a Prague School reader in linguistics, also edited by Vahek, 
and A Prague School Reader on Aesthetics, Literary Structure, and Style, edited by Paul Garvin. Other publications continuing the tradition included a Prague School Dictionary of Terms and a Journal of Pragian Ideas on Mathematical Linguistics, and university courses exclusively addressing theory from the Prague School have been adopted into some university linguistic programs curricula. However, even the second generation of Prague School thinkers in the 1960s suffered such severe censorship in the Soviet invasion of 1968 and its subsequent prolonged occupation that this time is marked as a dry period for linguistic study in Eastern Europe. In the Velvet Revolution of 1989, the freedom and rich legacy of Prague School thought and academic research returned once more to the Czech Republic, and quote, a remarkable resurgence of humanistic scholarship followed. The expelled scholars returned to the universities and academic institutes, the immigré came home from exile, or at least came for visits, and a stream of younger students finished their delayed education. It is this historical background that explains why Czech literary theory developed so rapidly in the post-communist era." Unquote. There are to date 50 to 60 individual thinkers who are credited as being members of the pre-war Prague School, and although it seems that the dynamic strength of the early Prague School is not entirely resuscitated, its work still lives and deeply influences the realms of linguistics and the study of narrative today. I might do another episode about post-war Prague theories and the implications of Pragian theory today, but for now, I think this is enough. Hopefully, you now have a deeper appreciation for Prague and the development of today's linguistics. If you want to know more, I have a ton of resources about Prague that I could recommend to you. You can find some of those on the Works Cited list for this episode, which can be found on my website, taffythelogolep.com. So now that you have stuck around for this whole episode and you know all about the Prague Linguistic Circle, I think it is clearly safe to say that you are indeed a Logolette too. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time. This episode of Taffy the Logolept featured so many sources from all over the world and throughout the 20th century. And you can find a complete list of all of those sources, along with a transcript of this episode and all of our episodes, at taffythelogolept.com. I want to give a special thanks to my thesis committee, including Dr. Marion Hollings, Dr. Aleka Blackwell, and Dr. William Langston. Thank you again for your support, your feedback, your encouragement, and your shoulders to cry on. Also, special thanks to Martina Wise for her help with the check pronunciations. Our logo was designed by Megan Starling, who you can email at mrstardesign at gmail.com. If you want to reach me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Taffy the Logolept. You can also find me on Twitter at Taffy Logolept. You can check me out on the website, taffythelogolept.com, or email me at taffythelogolept at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, please consider leaving a comment or a review, or why not both? It would help me out a lot. Iosifovich 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 Iosifovich
Yosifovich Kartevsky. Sergei Yosifovich Kartevsky. Okay. In 1925, Sergei Yosifovich Kartevsky and Bohuslav Havranik joined this group too. Yes! <laughs> Got it. 